2: But a number have also brought up the political makeup of D.C. In 2016, the Democratic presidential candidate beat Trump; it got 91 percent of the vote. In 2020, the the Democratic candidate got 92 percent of the vote. So Trump says, and and the January 6th defendant said, you know, it's politically stacked against us, and and so that will be a crucial issue.
1: I'm Catherine Pompilio, Associate Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 14th, 2023. On August 6th, former President Donald Trump announced on social media that he would immediately seek a venue change out of D.C. of his recent four-count federal indictment in Washington, D.C. for allegedly conspiring to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. He cited the city's overwhelmingly-majority liberal political demographics as a reason for transferring the trial's venue, and called the city a, quote, "...filthy and crime-ridden embarrassment to our nation." Is Trump likely to succeed in court if he files a motion to transfer venue? Is there any precedent for this? Have other January 6th defendants made similar claims? And how is the Supreme Court likely to interpret this issue? To answer all of these questions and more, I sat down with Lawfare senior editor Roger Parloff, who has been closely tracking the January 6 prosecutions and recently published a piece on Lawfare unpacking this issue. We discuss what January 6 defendants have argued in their motions to transfer venue, how the Justice Department has responded, and why, if Trump files a motion to transfer venue in his January 6th case, it is likely, as Roger puts it, dead on arrival. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 14th, Roger Parloff on Trump's vowed D.C. trial venue change. So we're here to talk through venue in Trump's D.C. case. Could you just give us a, a brief overview of what venue is in a case and how it's usually determined?
2: Yeah, early on you need to choose where to bring the case and the the district the specific district in in federal court that's the venue many states have several districts uh, federal districts of course we're in the district of columbia in the trump january 6th case so there's only one district the district of district of columbia but uh this is a uh you know the constitution contemplates uh, in a general way, it's not crystal clear, but that that crimes will be prosecuted where they occurred. Article 3, Section 2, Clause 3 says, the trial of all crimes except in case of impeachment shall be by jury, and such trial shall be held in the state where the said crimes shall have been committed. But when not committed within any state, the trial shall be at such place or places as the Congress may by law have directed. So since DC isn't literally a state, uh, you can say, you could say, well, it's not crystal clear. And then the sixth amendment also gives the defendant a right to trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed. So uh, there's a general presumption that it will be where it was committed. And Uh, It's an enforceable thing. Clearly, this is why uh, Jack Smith, at the end of the uh, classified documents grand jury uh, investigation, he decided, you know what, we better bring this in the Southern District of Florida because the crucial charge there, willful willful retention of classified documents occurred, you know, at Mar-a-Lago. Or allegedly occurred at Mar-a-Lago. It's part of the government's proof. You need to show that the that the crime is somehow connected to the district where you've brought the case.
1: And for our listeners, in case you haven't been watching the news or or somehow not aware of this, Uh, Trump was indicted August 1st by a D.C. federal grand jury in connection with January 6th and was recently arraigned at the E. Barrett Prettyman Courthouse, a building Roger has spent a lot of time in for the best reasons, not the bad reasons. (laughs) And so for his trial in this case, like Roger said, is set to be in D.C. But Trump has a bit of a problem with this. Uh, Roger, could you paint a picture for us about what Trump has said about the case's venue being in D.C. and and what he's asking for?
2: Yeah. Well, his lawyers haven't yet asked for anything. He has indicated that he will try to take the case out of D.C. He he mentioned that West Virginia would be a a less biased venue. I mean, a tremendous number of the January 6th defendants have tried to get their cases out of uh, D.C., there's a number of reasons they've articulated. Uh, one is just that January 6th was sort of traumatic for D.C. or more more traumatic for D.C. than any other jurisdiction. Some have cited the uh, select House committee hearings in D.C., which were uh, obviously a, a big deal, although they were nationally televised. So it's not clear that the any any bias that they generated would be worse here than nationally. But a number have also brought up the political makeup of D.C. In 2016, the Democratic presidential candidate beat Trump, it got 91% of the vote. Uh, in 2020, the, the Democratic candidate got 92% of the vote. So... Trump says and and the January 6th defendant said, you know, it's politically stacked against us. And and so that will be a crucial issue and we can talk about that more if you like.
1: So is this just about biased jurors politically what like what are they saying about these juries and and who these people are?
2: Yeah, it is that they're claiming they can't get a fair jury cuz it's a uh, Sort of this island of uh, politically hostile people and 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 an unusually homogeneous group of people. This, of course, came up. Uh, the the Supreme Court has never dealt with that issue. This came up in the Watergate prosecutions back in uh, the seventies. The key case here is. United States versus Haldeman, nineteen seventy-six. Uh that's a uh DC Court of Appeals, a Circuit Court of Appeals case, Federal Circuit Court of Appeals case. Uh it was N Bank, so it was uh all six active judges at that point. And uh five to one they upheld having uh tried the case in Washington. The defendants there were the top Watergate defendants, Attorney General John Mitchell, H.R. Haldeman, who was a top aide to Nixon, and John Ehrlichman, another top aide. And actually, I should say, and it's probably a sign of the times, they did not raise the political makeup of D.C. as an issue. They did ask for a change of venue. I think it was so; it was considered so... Uh, sort of gauche to bring that up, the, the notion that, uh, politics alone would be, uh, would disqualify somebody. So they were, they were saying that, that the Watergate, the saturation media coverage in Washington of the Watergate break in and of the Senate hearings about it afterwards, the sort of impeachment hearings, all of that, prevented them from getting a fair trial, but on appeal, it went up to, uh, the DC circuit. And one of the six judges on his own, the dissenting judge brought that up as an issue and he was very disturbed by it. Uh, that was George McKinnon. Uh, He was a Nixon appointee and actually his daughter is Catherine McKinnon, who's a feminist, uh, scholar, I think, currently a visiting scholar at Harvard. But he wrote things like this. He said in his dissent, the public record is that Washington, D.C. is unique in its overwhelming concentration of supporters of the Democratic Party as opposed to the Republican Party, to which the defendants here belonged. The candidate of the – well, at that point, the Democratic Party candidate for president had won – 82% 82% of the vote in 68 and 79% of the vote in 72. So, so actually the, you can see it's even gotten more tilted since then. And he also wrote, uh, in Washington DC, uh, there most emphatically does appear to be a unique island of political bias. And in this case, with its massive political aspects, it would be futile to ignore the possibility that prior to the trial, potential jurors may have formed prejudgments of the case based on their political affiliation and leanings. So that that language will definitely be, be quoted, but that was, of course, a lone dissent. And the majority really brushed that off at the time, really uh, with distaste, uh, as if they didn't want to dignify it with reasoned uh, engagement. They referred to it as a uh, an odd argument. They stressed the fact that there was no precedent cited. And and of course, they stressed the fact that the defendants themselves had raised it. They said uh, not without reason they didn't raise it because uh, the relevance of this information seems to have escaped the prosecution, the defendants, their counsel, and the trial court. So there's a strong precedent there but the precedent is that politics does not matter but it's 47 years old and it was by a court that was actually dominated by sort of liberal lions like um, Skelly Wright and um, uh, David Bazelon and uh, so if this goes to the Supreme Court I I don't know that it would get the same treatment that uh, it got in United States versus Haldeman in 1976.
1: So is the Justice Department in their oppositions to these motions relying on Haldeman, or are there other...
2: Yeah, Haldeman is the key case. And what happened, and there have been a lot, in the January 6th, there have been a lot of motions to transfer. All have been rejected. And what, what Haldeman does at first is it says... First of all, you're never going to get, almost never going to get a change of venue motion until you first try uh, voir dire. You go through the jury selection process, and then you see, was that sufficient to get a fair trial? And if after going through that process, you find that it really was impossible to get a fair jury, then you might change the venue but then so you you deny the motion without prejudice, and then you revisit it after the jury selection and as far as i know I'm, uh, there's there, there's virtually uh, certainly in the January sixth cases there's n- been no case where somebody was granted a change of venue and i i believe in in since seventy six if anyone has it, it there might have been one case I don't know what it was it's it's exceedingly rare so mm-hmm in in DC, it's not likely to happen.
1: So in their motions, do the January 6th defendants and potentially Trump in any potential motion have any precedent to rely on? Has this happened before?
2: Yes. Um, one of the issues that came up in the January 6th cases, and may come up again in a Trump motion to, to change venue, uh, had to do with the congressional hearings that were occurring. And, of course, for many of the January 6th defendants, those hearings were occurring, you know, right in the middle of their trials. And for some of them, uh, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, those people were being mentioned at the hearings. Rhodes, uh, Stuart Rhodes, the uh, founder of the Oath Keepers, the lead defendant there was mentioned about 20 times in the hearings same with enrique tario the top defendant uh, the proud boy defendant so those were sort of colorable motions and uh, the the case that w- they were citing the defense lawyers was one called delaney versus united states which is a first circuit case it's a, a court of appeals for the first circuit which is uh, that that the case came out of boston And Delaney was a collector. He was an inter high level internal revenue service official. I think his title was um, collector of uh, revenue. And uh, he was indicted for a scheme that uh, uh, was getting a lot of media attention and a, a congressional hearing was convened right in the middle after his indictment and before his trial. And there, the First Circuit uh, did overturn his conviction. He hadn't actually asked for a change of venue. He had asked for a postponement. But it's the the same principle. And, uh, in fact, in that case, the First Circuit said that – they said that Congress and the prosecutors were – they would treat them the same – uh, even though the prosecutors had tried, had, had begged Congress not to hold hearings for this very reason, the, the court there said that, well, it's United States versus Delaney, and both of these bodies are parts of the United States uh, government, so we're going to treat them the same.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance. And enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code lawfare20.
1: So, in your article that you published this week on lawfare on this topic, you mentioned, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've mentioned that the Supreme Court in the past has ruled that in extraordinary cases, changes of venue could be granted. What are those extraordinary cases? And then a follow up to that is that. Trump is the former president. In your opinion, do you think that that might constitute an extraordinary case?
2: Well, there have been cases where the Supreme Court has overturned a conviction because of the lack of a change of venue. The key examples involve very small jurisdictions, usually rural jurisdictions. There's one that's very important for this, that created a very important precedent that was actually quoted in the Haldeman case, Irwin versus Dowd. That case involved a county of about 30,000 and uh, it was a murder, six murders. And the uh, defendant, it had been reported, widely reported that the defendant had confessed to all six murders. He had offered to plead guilty in exchange for a sentence a life sentence, and that had been rejected. That had been widely reported, uh, and so the jurors were saying things like, I, sh- I-, "I." In in voir dire, they were saying things like, "I think he should be hanged." Eight of the twelve jurors who were finally s- seated had expressed the view that he was guilty during jury selection, and one had said it would take evidence to overcome uh, my belief you know they were very extreme another case uh, Rideau versus louisiana from 1963 and incidentally wilbert redo uh, is still uh, still around he's uh, an author and award-winning journalist uh, from his work in angola prison he's i think he's still there but that was a jurist a parish of 150,000 people he had been filmed in a jailhouse confession and that had been broadcast on TV and three of the seated jurors had seen the confession and um uh there were two deputy sheriffs on the jury uh you know these were some pretty severe you know uh, extreme situations in recent times uh in a federal court the Oklahoma City bombing case was removed it did win a, a change of venue and actually that case by the way was supervised by uh, Merrick Garland um when he he was uh, at the justice department i i forget his exact title at that time but that uh also was a case uh, where the courthouse ex- uh, federal courthouse in oklahoma city was damaged from the blast uh which was uh, nearby and um The the government knew it had to move it. They they wanted to move it to Tulsa, though, keep it in Oklahoma so that the victims could attend, victims' families. But uh, in the end, they moved it to Colorado. That one had caused 168 dead, including 19 infants and children. You remember there was a daycare center in the uh, Alfred uh, Murrah building that was bombed. So it was just an excruciating Uh, emotional case. That's the sort of thing you need. In contrast, we've had highly, highly mediatized uh, prosecutions, the Watergate prosecutions. The Boston Marathon bomber was tried in Boston. Jeffrey Skilling of Enron was tried in Houston. The collapse of Enron had, you know, repercussions all across Houston because so many people had invested in it, and the bankruptcy had economic ripples throughout the the city. Nevertheless, uh, that was tried there. The World Trade Center bombings of 1993, they were tried in Manhattan. So, uh, yeah, it has to be really extraordinary. And, no, I, I, I don't see anything extraordinary about this prosecution that would merit moving it out of Washington, especially since most of the publicity that it's generated has been national publicity and 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 going back to that case irwin versus dowd the precedent that it's set is is basically this there's sort of as with many court cases there's a on the one hand on the other hand and the pro government half of it goes like this it says it is not required that the jurors be totally ignorant of the facts and issues involved. In these days of swift, widespread, and diverse methods of communication, an important case can be expected to arouse the interest of the public in the vicinity, and scarcely any of those best qualified to serve as jurors will not have formed some impression or opinion as to the merits of the case. This is particularly true in criminal cases. To hold that the mere existence of any preconceived notion as to the guilt or innocence of an accused without more is sufficient to rebut uh, the presumption of a prospective juror's impartiality would be to establish an impossible standard. It is sufficient if the juror can lay aside his impression or opinion and render a verdict based on the evidence presented in court. So that's the crucial language that uh, the prosecution will cite. That will probably carry the day. The pro-defense half of that ruling, and remember that in that, that extraordinary case, they did grant, they did overturn the conviction. It says that the influence that lurks in an opinion once formed is so persistent that it unconsciously fights detachment from the mental processes of the average man. So if it seems during jury selection that there's sort of a pervasiveness about the anti-defendant opinion, and everyone shares those opinions, and even though even though they say, I can disregard that and be a fair juror and listen to the facts... You can second-guess them at a certain point, and that's what the defense will try to say.
1: What's your take on that?
2: Well, I'm not completely neutral in this either. So, I mean, but, but you know, my take is that the jurors can, even though they've been exposed to uh, superficially, yet they've probably seen some of the hearings. They can put that out of their mind, and and rule and that's what they did that that was the ruling in in the watergate case 8 of 12 jurors said in the watergate prosecution of Mitchell and Haldeman and Ehrlichman said that they had watched at least some of the hearings and that did not matter and uh we saw in the proud boys case uh, in particular a number of those jurors were familiar with you know they had heard scraps of Information they had heard that they were involved, but uh, that sort of thing is is the sort of thing that's permissible under Irwin versus Down.
1: And please forgive me, I'm forgetting exactly which case this was in, but I think it was either the one of the Proud Boys or Oath Keepers defendants, where a judge in denying the motion to transfer venue had this really great line about how you know most people that live and work in the district. Yes, there are those that work in government, but there are also cab drivers, teachers, different people that are not directly affected and and may not pay attention to all of this as much as, you know, somebody in government might, or somebody interested in this might.
2: Yes, exactly. That was, um, uh, the judge was Amy Berman Jackson. I, I can't remember which defendant it was, but, uh, yes, that was, uh, she did a very careful uh, and lengthy ruling about in, in many of these cases and we'll see this doubtless with trump and we saw it with the watergate case the defendants do a survey you know they commission a survey of uh what the uh, prospective jurors think about various subjects in the jurisdiction they want to get away from in this case, DC, and in a couple other jurisdictions they'd rather go to, but she was, and she looked very carefully at three of those, uh, surveys that various January 6th defendants had, uh, commissioned and, uh, was pretty unsparing in her criticism. Those, those surveys do tend to they're sort of hired gun type situations. And, uh, the judges generally don't give them a lot of weight. Certainly the judges in the Watergate case did not, uh, and the, the, the give much more preference to the power of the ju- tools you have at jury selection. And, you know, like in the Proud Boys case, what happened was you start with a venire, you know, a prospect, a group of prospective jurors of, maybe 150. I think it was 150. And then you give them a 60-page survey written. Uh, that's the first step. And they fill out this pretty in-depth survey. And that that should bring to light certain red flags or areas to explore. even on, on the basis of the survey alone, and also hardship, you know, people, I can't do it. I can't do a four to six-week trial because... You know, I have young children at home or, you know, but so they 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 weed out some of the obvious cases with the survey. Then you call in the people that remain and uh, you go through one by one. You know, the entire courtroom is vacated. There's only one person in the jury, you know, one prospective juror in the witness box being questioned by the judge with with the attorneys there a very thoroughgoing questioning. The juror leaves for a few minutes. Then the judge listens to objections, attempts to re- request that he be excused, he or she be excused for cause, uh, requests that he ask additional questions. Then the juror is brought out back in. Uh, the judge asks additional questions. The juror goes out again, and they make the final decision will the person be struck for cause. And then, uh, if they aren't at the end of this process, you'll have maybe 50 or 60 left. And then each side gets a certain number of peremptory challenges, which means, um, strikes, uh, you can remove that jury without even articulating a cause for your strike. And then, uh, finally you, uh, you and panel the jury. So it's, it's a very careful, laborious process. And um, most judges trust it. And they don't trust surveys and, you know, by hired guns.
1: Yeah, could you talk a little bit more about these, I guess, commissioned surveys? Who are they? Yeah, who are they conducted by? Is there a standard for survey questions? And do they tend to, they don't really tend to hold up in in court, I guess? Could you just talk more about it?
2: Yeah. I, you know, there, I shouldn't be, you know, that critical and some are better than others. One was commissioned by um, the federal public defender's office in DC and, you know, which is a very, very reputable outfit, uh very, very good uh, team of lawyers. And I can't remember how it was conducted, but some, you know, there are reputable survey companies that, you know, I don't know if Gallup does it but people of you know almost comparable you know stature that might do a survey like this but and then on the other hand you can have some uh less less convincing groups that do uh you know telephone surveys and and obviously loaded questions and that sort of thing so it it does vary but um Judge Jackson was not in impressed even with the best of them
1: and the purpose of these external surveys is to try and get some evidence to prove that there's bias in a jury pool
2: yeah it's the defense effort to create empirical evidence proof you know it's also something to show the appellate court that uh the cards were stacked against my client and so you compare several cities typically and then say uh there, it, it would not have been so expensive to do this in uh, Richmond, Virginia, or Delaware. And uh, some have even asked for uh, the Eastern District of Virginia, which is uh, Alexandria, which, of course, not very far away. Uh, although the, the problem with Alexandria is it's basically the same media market. So what are you asking for except maybe a few more uh, Republicans in the jury pool? and and then some have asked for a lot have asked for transfer to their own home districts in far western far western virginia or uh, miami but um, nothing has succeeded
1: and the their i guess basis for that is that there're more like-minded people in those districts or just not as tainted of a pool
2: well i i don't think you're allowed to i, I don't think it's strategically a good idea to say you're trying to find, you know, to that you're hunting for the most favorable, the most biased in your favor. So you, you always try to couch it as the, the DC jurors are the most tainted and the ones in my district are less tainted. And, and plus uh, you try to say uh, there, there's witnesses in my district, so it won't be uh so it it will make uh, sense in terms of efficiencies and uh maybe even if it's a conspiracy case i allegedly some of the conspiracy occurred in my my district the alleged conspiracy so it's it's the venue is proper you know arguments like that
1: gotcha so everything that we know from trump on this issue i think he's posted on on truth social there's been no official motions filed in the case to transfer
2: venue. That's right. And and in fact, uh, there was some pushback from one of his lawyers, I think from John Laurel, who was uh, saying that, well, he was reacting the way a, a non-lawyer would, because he not only promised to uh, seek a, a change in venue, he promised to move to recuse the judge. And um, uh, Laurel quickly uh, wanted to say, uh, well, I, I'm not, uh, that's not me. That's that's the client who's a non-lawyer. But I will say that um, in one of the uh, motions that he filed uh, recently, or one of the uh, submissions, uh, there was a footnote where he objected to the fact that Judge Chutkin had not given him, uh, yes, it was in the litigation over the initial protective order, which is usually sort of a routine thing. Usually, before the government turns over discovery, it asks for a protective order so that the discovery, which usually contains sensitive information like secret grand jury transcripts, will not be abused, will not be publicized, will not, which can be dangerous for witnesses. It can be an invasion of privacy, and it uh, you know you try the case in the court. It's bad form, and usually the defense doesn't object to the protective order because and they want to get the discovery very quickly. Uh, here, Trump has objected to the protective order, and he 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 wants to have a very slow, uh, in depth. Motions process about the discovery order, which is delaying the commencement of discovery. And Judge Chutkin didn't permit that and said, No, 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 give me your reasons. Give me your reasons right now. Let's get this settled so we can start turning over the discovery. And in a footnote, they objected and said, Well, if you won't give us the 14 days we're normally entitled to uh, in, to respond to a motion under the local rules, uh, you're violating our due process rights, and if this persists, we'll have to take action. Some, something along th- those lines. It was a bit of a shot across the bow, maybe a, a, an attempt to build a record, to, to make a challenge, to uh, ask her to recuse herself. But for the, for now, I think it's just Trump on social media. I don't want to ask you to
1: to speculate on, you know, a SCOTUS ruling on this, especially because there's no motion. And it's also, I know that you said at the end of every one of each article you've written on this, that, you know, the court's kind of unpredictable, so we shouldn't speculate.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, if somebody is convicted and the appeal goes up the ranks, you know, as long as it goes to the DC circuit the government is okay if this goes to the supreme court and that political issue the issue of whether dc is a is an island of sort of unusual democratic uh, homogeneity that's unfair to in a case like this i don't know what the current supreme court would do with that i mean the supreme court's never opined about it and we know what its composition is like these days, and it doesn't resemble the composition of the D.C. Circuit in 1976. So if that becomes an appellate issue and it reaches the Supreme Court, that's a, that's, that's a very open question.
1: All right. Well, Roger Parloff, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this conversation and definitely learned a lot, and I hope our listeners did as well.
2: Me too. Thanks very much, Catherine.
1: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it.